What's up, my friends? Welcome back to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn, and this is episode number 251. And it's uh, part number three, the final installment of our series for Pride called Leo WT Takes Over the Show. What the heck does that mean? (laughs) If this is your first episode that you're dropping in on, uh, Leo Walters Tejera is the uh, host of the Conversations Official podcast, and they are a really good friend of mine. Uh, We actually went to the same Bible college, uh, not at the same time, at different times, but we've uh, met post-Bible college. Uh, We've shared some some stories. We've become really good friends over the years. They've been a huge support and cheerleader to me uh, in the What If Project, and uh, I do some stuff for them with their social media. We've just become really good friends, and so after my father passed away uh, in March, the podcast obviously went quiet for a while, and then I talked about how I was planning to start it up again over the summer, uh, which will be in July, uh, with bi-weekly episodes going into the fall, and then we'll at some point return to weekly episodes. So so Leo approached me and said, hey, like I know things have been quiet uh, because you're taking a break, which is a really good thing to do. Uh, but they said, hey, how about uh, I record some solo episodes for Pride uh, that you can release on your podcast, and it'll be kind of like a bridge from the silence into the bi-weekly episodes uh, starting up in July. And I was like, yes, that's a fantastic idea, because I was wondering, I, was, I don't know, I was like, I was wondering, like, what's it going to be like to be silent for three months <laughs> and then just start episodes up again? And so I thought this was a really good idea. And plus, Leo has just such amazing things to share. Uh, Their first episode, they talked about kind of a little bit about their story, like general introduction into who they are. Second episode blew my mind. It was all about like queer theology and just things that I never really considered before. And then this episode is about their thesis. Uh, They recently graduated with their master's and uh, they talked to us about their thesis that they wrote about the intersection of Uh, scientific development and theology and religion and all these different things. And and the title of this episode is great. It comes from a a segment at the end of the episode, but the title is uh, Leo W.T. says religion and theology are far more queer than we've been told because apparently, friends, I didn't know this, but we've been fed a lie. Uh, And what is that lie? You're going to have to listen in on the episode (laughs) to hear more about it, but it blew my mind. Uh, and we're talking about doing a fourth installment of this, which will actually be a conversation between Leo and myself, where I ask them some follow-up questions from these episodes, because I'm actually going to be reading their thesis this summer. I want to pick up some of the books they've mentioned in the episodes and kind of at least skim some of those, and then get them back on the show to like pick their brain a little bit uh, about queer theology, their thesis, and things like that. So a fourth installment is coming, uh, and and you'll be able to send in questions. I'm going to actually create something maybe on the website or at least on social media where people can send me questions that they might have for Leo uh, as follow-up questions from these episodes, and they'll probably post some things on their page as well, uh, inviting people to ask whatever questions that they they might have. So anyway, Good stuff coming up. Uh, like I said, the final installment of this series for Pride minus the Q&A that's coming up. 
after this, starting on July 10th, uh, we'll be releasing, like I said, bi-weekly episodes into October, maybe November, when we'll go back to weekly. Uh, I have 10 episodes recorded that I recorded uh, in January and February before my father uh, passed away. And so I've been sitting on those because they recorded their really good conversations, but they needed to be edited and things like that. I needed to record some intros for them. I just wasn't in the mental space to do any of that. And I'm still kind of not there, which is why I'm doing them bi-weekly, not weekly. Uh, I'm just not really ready to jump back into the full speed uh, of things. And I may never get to that point. So we'll see. We'll see kind of where it goes. Grief, grief is a messy thing. Uh, but anyway, so starting next week, uh, not next week, the week after, July 10th, we'll be doing bi-weekly episodes. The first one is with Bart Ehrman. I talked to Bart, I think it was in late January, maybe early February, about his latest book, Armageddon. So he comes on to talk to us about uh, the end of the world, the rapture, and actually read for him. <laughs> I actually got off my shelf uh, one of my old Revelation books from my evangelical days. Uh, it's by Tim LaHaye, who, who helped with the Left Behind series, him and uh, what's his name? Philip Jenkins or something. I forget his name. Anyway, but Tim LaHaye wrote this commentary on Revelation. And he talks about how, you know, how everybody says like, oh, the rapture isn't like a thing because it was invented by John Darby, however many hundred years ago, whatever. And it's not like, it's not even anywhere near being ancient or orthodox or whatever. And so LaHaye says in this book that that's not true. Uh, that actually a very early church father refers to the rapture, and he has this sermon that he refers to. So I read Bart this section of the book, <laughs> and I ask him to respond to it, and it's it's uh, it's classic Bart. It's really good. Uh, but we had a really good conversation. Uh, after that, we've got Heather Hamilton coming on to talk about uh, her book, uh, all about the Bible and things like that. We have Kevin Sweeney coming on to talk to us about joy and mysticism. Uh, we have Dana Hicks coming on to talk to us about marriage. Uh, all, all really good conversations that I'm excited to share with you. So, like I said, uh, they will start releasing on July 10th, and we'll go biweekly into October or November. Uh, my book has just come out on Father's Day. It's called Emerging from the Rubble. Uh, if you haven't picked it up yet, please do. Uh, it's available on Amazon, Kindle, or paperback. Uh, this book is, I wrote this book over the course of my father's battle with cancer. Uh, it's all about grief and loss, and it looks at the Gospel of Matthew, and we look at different stories from the Gospel of Matthew through the lens of his readers who were living in the wake of Rome's destruction of their temple. And so in the book, we kind of get in touch with our fallen temples and our lives, and we wonder how these stories in Matthew's gospel might be able to encourage, inspire, and challenge us to uh, eventually step step up from the rubble, brush the dust off, and find the courage to take a step forward into whatever the future might be uh, without that very precious temple that has come down in our lives. So for me, the temple is the death of my father. Uh, for you, it could be the loss of a loved one. It could be uh, you know, a bad report from the doctor. Um, it could be a broken dream, the loss of a job, a broken marriage, uh, loss of some kind of relationship. But to kind of get in touch with those broken places in our lives and read these stories uh, from Matthew through that lens, just like his original readers uh, would have done. So again, it's available on Amazon, Emerging from the Rubble. Really important book to me. 
I'd love it if you picked it up. If you can't afford a copy, I get it. Just email me, uh, whatifproject.net at gmail.com. I will either send you a paperback copy or I will send you a uh, at least a PDF or EPUB file that you can open up on your iPad, your phone, your Kindle, uh, whatever. So uh, anyways, I think that's it. That's all I got. Uh, put it all in the show notes along with Patreon. If you want to support the show financially, uh, it's a place that you can do that. There's also a support page on the website if you want to make a one-time donation. All the money, just to be transparent, goes to help pay the bills, You know, keep the lights on, <laughs> pay the the gas, the electric, uh, the mortgage, all those different kinds of things. Uh, this is one of our sources of income. And uh, we have 53 patrons. We are extremely grateful for each and every one of you. Uh, we didn't lose any over the course of these three or four months that I've been quiet. Uh, everyone has been so supportive and so encouraging. And uh, we really are building a little community there in Patreon. Everybody get access to a Discord chat group. We chat throughout the course of the week. Uh, once in a while, we hop on Zoom and get to see each other's faces and hear each other's voices. And uh, it's, a, it's a whole lot of fun. So anyway, I'll put all the links to all the things in the show notes. But that's all. We're at a 10-minute intro. I think that's definitely long enough. Uh, but this is part three of our Pride series. Leo WT takes over the show. Uh, let's talk about their thesis. Enjoy. How's it going? It's Leo WT here, back for our third installment of the What If Project Pride Takeover with me, Leo WT. So for the last few weeks, you've been hearing things about like who I am, my story, where I came from, how I got to where I am. And then uh, you also heard about the introduction of queer theology. So just a general idea of what is the discipline? Can there even be queer theology? How does that play out? all that sort of thing. So today, for this installment, I want to talk to you folks a little bit about my particular area of research. I just completed my Master's of Arts in Religious Studies, where I focused most of my courses on theology, um, on queer theology and interfaith relationships, which for me is sort of an extension of queerness, right? Because queerness, by definition, is going beyond the binary. So even though I'm a Christian, I really believe that theology is intersectional, and I believe that life is intersectional because there's there's never just us. There's 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 never just them. There's always we. There's always us together, um, and things overlap and things interrelate. If you're in the Northeast United States as you're listening to this, or even Canada, you'll know that a few weeks back we had a huge spell of smoke that was just it all covering um, all the cities of the Northeast, even down into New York City. And they were from uh, like Canadian wildfires that were happening. And basically the sun was blotted out essentially for a day. And I, I think that that's a perfect example of how queer life really is, right? Boundaries and borders are fake and togetherness is the only way that we move forward. So that's me in a nutshell. But I want to talk to you guys about my particular area of research for my last degree. I just recently completed a master's of arts in religious studies with, like I said, concentration 
in uh, interfaith engagement and queer theologies, because I think that's a way forward. Like I said previously, I believe that my queerness informs my theology and my theology informs my queerness in a way that is both good and holy. And so what I wanted to do was take a little bit of a queer look at the history of how the church responds to homosexuality, particularly in North America uh, and particularly in the Christian church, because those are my contexts. So I just wrote a thesis and um, I'm really proud of it. I'm really pumped on it. I'm actually working to turn it into a book. Um, and my boy Glenn here is hopefully going to be helping me out on that. But the focus of this particular thesis was actually, and hold on to your seats because this is a long title, but the focus is the intersection of theology and scientific development in mid-20th century America, as represented by the Kinsey studies on human sexuality and American theology. So what all that means is essentially there was some scientific development in the mid 20th century that made a massive change in the theological landscape. And a lot of people like to say that theology and science don't interact. People like to pretend as if God and God's creation are two separate things, which I think is absolutely ludicrous. And honestly, usually it's from a point of defensiveness of trying to defend a, a dogmatic belief that doesn't really hold up to scientific scrutiny. But my thought was kind of what would happen if we actually look at the interaction of theology and science and saw how it was po possibly generative or beneficial. And there's some good things there. So there are, there's a long history of queerness and religiosity in, in Christianity. There's a long history of queerness existing even back into antiquity. But what I wanted to focus on was this sort of 19... 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s America, because that was a particularly pertinent time in American history. I'm going to drop some titles of some books that I used as a, a sort of a, a springboard for my work. And one of those books is Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen Kobe Dumay. I had the privilege of interviewing her on my podcast conversations a few years ago, right before the book Jesus and John Wayne blew up. Um, and it was, it was a pretty awesome experience. I was definitely, you know, like, um, is definitely batting out of my league there. So, but um, Kristen wrote a book called Jesus and John Wayne. And what she does is she is a historian and she breaks down the history of uh, evangelicalism in America. And she talks about how uh, masculinity in particular is, is impacted by America and America's development. And when I read her book, what really got me thinking was as a historian, she put out, she uh, linked together all of these different sources that came together to really build the culture that is evangelicalism and and masculine sort of supremacy or headship, if you will, if if you're a complementarian, um, which would be an interesting person to be listening to this podcast. But so she broke down about all these sort of different these different historical things that were happening in the mid twentieth century, and for me, that's that kind of triggered my thought, right? And I wanted to talk about and see if there was a reaction to the Kinsey studies. Now, what the Kinsey studies are is they were the first widespread studies on human sexuality uh, that were um, that were published. Right. There had been previous studies on human sexuality, but they weren't widespread. They weren't really a good cross section um, and they weren't really statistically significant. So Alfred Kinsey 
did studies on human sexuality. He did a study on human sexuality, er, sexuality in the human male and sexuality in the human female. The human male came out first, the human female came out second, and as you would expect, the, the volume about females enraged the church uh, even more greatly than the males, because how dare we set women free from the bonds of patriarchy, but I digress. It's a story for later down the line. So, these studies happened, and you'll have to forgive me because I haven't had my entire coffee yet, and I don't have my paper in front of me, but they happened in the like late 40s, early 50s, right? Mid-1950s in America. And as a quick caveat, the studies are limited. Um, they didn't have terminology and understanding of queerness that we have now. So I'm not saying the studies are perfect. I'm just saying, saying they exist. I'm not trying to be an apologist here because they did have their downfalls. Um, there wasn't a lot of racial diversity and um, there, there wasn't an understanding of gender fluidity as much as humans, uh, you know, orientation. So they have their downfalls, but they did do a thing, right? Um, Alfred Kinsey was an interesting person to, to, you know, enact this study because he was actually an agnostic. Uh, he had grown up in a believe I, I believe a Methodist home in the American Midwest, and was not really into that sort of faith world. But he did have some strong feelings about how the faith world impacted Christianity, which you can see um, in his writings. So he took all these people. And he started to just ask questions about human sexual experience. And one of the questions or areas of focus that he had was homosexual engagement. And he found out that the amount of uh, human males and human females that were engaging in same-sex behavior at some point in their life was drastically higher than anticipated. And this was kind of shocking because it was the first time that that was ever really quantified. I can't give you the exact numbers right now. You'll have to read my book when it comes out. Um, but yes, yeah, so the, the numbers were much, much higher. And so what happened was for the first time on paper, Alfred Kinsey was saying, whoa, he, homosexuality is, is less of an aberration and more of a, an occurrence that happens commonly. And then, of course, the church has to respond to that in some way or another because the church has always deemed itself the harbinger of human sexuality. And I think that is really, really, really interesting. So what I did was I looked at that study and I looked at the correspondence between Kinsey and religious leaders. And then I looked at uh, sermons and texts and theological statements and functions of the church that happened that were directly related to the studies, to the theological response of the studies, and how that played out in America. It was really interesting. Also, as a side note, at this time in history, it's the post-World War II era, and so sociologically speaking, the world was going through massive changes, right? Like, we just, we, we, um, conquered the world, we came back, and we were excited about that. But a couple of things happened during world, in World War II and right after that were really interesting. And one of them was there were largely homosocial uh, populations. And what I mean by that is that men were abroad fighting and they were with other men and women were at home working and supporting the troops, but, but largely with other women. And so people found themselves in these environments that were largely homosocial or people of the same uh, sex that was assigned at birth. And that created a space for different types of relationships to develop because people were rubbing shoulders with people of the same sex 
in a way that they hadn't been before. There was also a sort of shifting national identity and a changing attitude towards sexuality in America. And also, we kind of started to dip our toes in the water of what if women were autonomous beings that could function apart from men? The heresy, I know, terrifying, but we were starting to do that. So that was the world that the Kinsey studies came into and that American theologians and pastors and faith leaders had to speak to. Because if something that big is happening, you have to speak to it as a pastor. It does, it does no good for theologians and pastors to bury their heads in the sand and say things don't exist, which is a current hot take of the modern evangelical church that homosexuality just doesn't exist. Um, so they did not take notes from this. But if something that, if a big shift like that happens in our world, I would think as someone who grew up in the church and wants to work in the church, uh, albeit a confusing choice for me to be making, I would think that when the when major world changes happen, the church should be there speaking to or about or engaged in what is happening. So Kinsey had all of these relationships with different uh, pastors and different ministers and different um, religious institutions. And, and he talked to them regularly. If you look at the KinseyInstitute.org, they have a sort of chronicling of his interactions with religious leaders. And I also drew on um, some, some of those, some work that kind of sums up those chroniclings. Uh, and I have those, I'll list those in the description box, but they kind of go into more of the scholarly reading. But um, basically, there were pastors, some of them who outright disagreed with Kinsey, but decided to have a dialogue, and some of them who heard Kinsey's work and said, we need to respond to this. And they communicated directly with him and built friendship and rapport and invited Kinsey to speak, invited his research assistant, uh, Pomroy, to speak. They were in the news media. There was conferences, all of these things. And what I found to be the most interesting thing about the way that Kinsey interacted with religious officials and about the way religious officials and professionals responded to Kinsey is that the history of homosexuality in America, by way of connection to the American church, is not entirely negative. Now, understand, I'm not trying to say that it's entirely positive, but all I'm saying is that you cannot, with any sense of intellectual honesty, say that the church has always been opposed to homosexuality, because that is absolutely untrue. And there are tons of resources that talk about all sorts of period from antiquity to now, but my, like I said, my particular focus was American theology in the mid you know, mid-20th century. It was not a completely negative response. And so what we see now and what we see building uh, through the history period that uh, Kristen talks about in Jesus and John Wayne, we see building this sort of campaign of like a through line of absolute negativity towards homosexuality and towards queer behavior and queer people. We see that as something that the church wanted to perpetuate as normal, but that is a blatant lie. The church as a whole has never been 100% anti-LGBTQ. It is a lie. It's a scheme. And the only reason that people think that is because the people that are yelling the loudest right now are the ones that hate gay people. And they use religion to further that agenda. But it's not accurate. 
if you look back at these interactions between Hin Kinsey and, and religious um, sort of peers that he had, there was plenty of responses that go on a scale from, we understand homosexuality exists, but we don't really support it, but we need to support the person, to we need to reorient how we think about theology and how we handle LGBTQ people. There's a, there's a, there's a spectrum of responses, but they are not all weighted at the negative end. They're just not. And as the research of uh, historian Heather White shows, like there was a large engagement between the mainline Protestant church and LGBTQ people. There was a renaissance of thinking and teaching around human sexuality that was directly affected by the Kinsey studies, that was directly set into motion by the work that was done by Kinsey and Pomeroy, which I think is really fascinating because... I'm not trying to say that the church as a whole is has to absolutely be pro-gay to be true to its history, but I'm saying you cannot say that the church as a whole is anti-gay as represented by its history. That is an important thing for me. And the whole reason that I wanted to study queer theology is not to tell, not to convince everybody that my queerness is okay and good and right or whatever. But it is to say, you cannot discount me because I am here and I'm queer and we have always been a part of the church. We have always been a part of church history. Moreover, queer people, two-spirited people, intersex people, eunuchs, we have always been a part of some of the most sacred activities of the church and of the community and of the world. We have from the very beginning of time. I don't care if you want to disagree with that. You can do that while looking silly because we are here and we're queer and we have been here throughout the entirety of religious and known history, period. I'm no longer interested in an identity that is an apology. My identity is not an apology. My identity as a queer person of faith is not a, a religious debate point. I literally exist. You can't say I don't exist because I'm here and I'm speaking and I'm drinking my coffee and I am doing all these things that prove that I'm a tangible human being. I exist. What you do with that is your choice, but I exist and we have always existed throughout religious and uh, throughout sacred and secular history. Wow, I really got on a tangent there, or I really got on a soapbox, let's say. But that was basically the point of my thesis. And I would love to give you, like, there's so there's so many more details in there. I think it's like 40 or 50 pages long. So there's so many more details and dates and things. But I think it's really important that people know that we are here and we are queer. and We've been here throughout religious history. Most of the churches that were engaging with the work of Kinsey, especially in the, in the mid, um, you know, mid 20th century, and that were really engaging in theological, deep theological thought and conversation were mainline Protestant churches. That was a big, um, that was sort of a big area of influence. There has always been, um, there has always been outliers. There has always been sort of fringe evangelical denominations that want to proclaim that they are this sort of the center of the voice of Christianity, but the mainline churches um, will say, uh, let's say Presbyterian, Episcopalian, Lutheran, um, those sorts of churches, right, that have a long-standing church history, Anglican, all of those churches, were the ones that the churches with the deepest roots, right, in history were the ones that were most 
quickly able to adapt, reconcile, and integrate queer people and queerness into their theology and congregation. I think that says a lot, that the churches that are the youngest, that are the uh, least historically solid and are what I would like to say is like theologically freeballing. Those churches that have no, no real roots in church history, those churches that have no real polity, that have no real sense of accountability for leaders, those are the ones that are yelling the loudest, saying that queer people don't belong. You've got to ask yourself a question. Why do the most established churches welcome LGBTQ people on average and why do the least mature, least historically grounded churches feel that they have the right to scream the loudest that gay people are going to hell? Ask yourself that question, and then ask yourself what the implications of that are. Another fun fact that I found in the thesis that I'd like to throw out is that as early as the early 1940s, there were LGBTQ congregants gathering under the leadership of LGBTQ clergy. And get this, one of the first recorded LGBTQ congregations was in Atlanta, Georgia. It was called Dignity, and it was, it's either Dignity or um, Eucharistic Church, but it was, it was a group of queer patrons and queer clergy that meant that met in a Catholic church in Atlanta, Georgia, as early as the 1940s. That, I think, was really interesting to me because there's a there's this idea that the Catholic church has always been oppositional. But I think what happened is that the majority opinion of the Catholic church might have been set, you know, in a way that was anti-LGBTQ, but there was clearly a contingency of, of clerical people and people that were going to the church that were like, yo, we're here and we're queer. In the South and in a Catholic church, like, there's some really interesting history out there that people don't know. And part of the problem of queerness right now is that our history is not well documented. Um, I think it's an African proverb that says, uh, as long as the uh, as long as the lion continues to be slain, history will always be told from the perspective of the hunter, right? So as long as the majority continues to write our history books, we'll never know about the real history of minority populations. But one beautiful thing that's coming to light right now is that historians are talking about the history of queerness in theology and queerness and antiquity and queerness in um, religious development. And that's fantastic to know because we are here and we're queer and we've been here since the beginning of time. What you do with that is your choice, but we exist and we matter and we're valuable and we always have been. So yeah, starting in the Catholic Church as early as the 1940s, there are queer theologians that go back to like some of the earliest writings of the church mothers and fathers. There's interfaith engagement uh, that goes to show that all like in antiquity, there were Muslims and Christians that shared the same monastery and worked alongside each other. Religion in theology is far more queer than we have been told. And I think that that is absolutely an exciting fact. So this is my thoughts. I, I'm not trying to prove that Christianity has always been absolutely 100% yay gay, but all I'm saying is you cannot be intellectually honest and say that the, the religion and theology, especially Christian, are anti-LGBTQ. That's actually absolutely intellectually dishonest. So that's the thoughts. I have so many more thoughts on this. I spent 12 months immersed in the research for this thesis, but it was absolutely transformative to write because I, I did sort of realize that there was a reason for me to exist in the church, and that's a very exciting thing. If you're interested in some more history, particularly about um, Christianity and theology, 
from, uh, you know, in religious engagement from like our sort of modern times all the way back to antiquity. I have a couple books that I would recommend for you. And there's a couple more um, that are in my thesis that I'll find a way to get the links out to. But I like to show that I'm not just pulling these ideas out of my own head. So some of the major uh, historians that are writing about queer history right now, especially in Christianity, is uh, is Heather White. Um, she wrote this book called Reforming Sodom, Protestants and the Rise of Gay Rights. So this is a really good book. And Heather actually has a a bunch of other writings out about the history of LGBTQ people in the church. Um, I believe she has a I believe it's her thesis. Um, I'm not sure if it's her thesis or dissertation, but I pulled a lot on her research for my, to put together my writings, because she did a lot of the preliminary sort of chronicling of Kinsey, Kinsey's interactions with theologians, historical reactions, and I kind of pulled uh, from there a lot to create the link between the actual theological change and the historical happenings. Another book that I really appreciated is Melissa Wilcox, Queer Religiosities. This book Probably, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that it changed my life because um, uh, Wilcox talks about queerness existing all across the spectrum of human history in all sorts of indigenous populations. And she talks particularly about how queer and transgender studies in religion impacted the development of the world. So I highly recommend this book. I don't think, I don't know if you can see it on here because it's so light, but literally almost every other page is highlighted or dog-eared in this. So this is definitely a good read. And then if you want to go a little bit further back in history, we have uh, Christianity, Social Tolerance, and Homosexuality, written by John Boswell. And this talks about the existence um, and acceptance of uh, queerness in essentially antiquity, in the times that the Bible came out of, um, in the times that the Bible was formed, in the times that the Bible talks about. So uh, the subtitle is Gay People in Western Europe from the Beginning of the Christian Era to the 14th Century. And so these are a lot of good resources. If, if you're really just trying to nerd out and trace your own sort of spiritual queer genealogy, you can look back at those and see that we've always been here, we've always been queer, and we've been important to the development of church history. I will drop the, I'm not sure how I'm going to get my thesis out there. I might have to wait until I get it in book form, but I will drop any links that I have out there that are possible. I will put any book names, if possible, in the show notes, and I look forward to uh, answering some questions from you folks. We are tossing around the idea of doing a question and answer episode, so you can ask me anything about my thesis, about my life story, about queer theology, and I will give you honest and candid answers, so we'll make that happen. I really appreciate all of you for listening to this. Um, as you can tell by how fast I speak, uh, I'm very excited. And I'm not even caffeinated yet. And it gets like twice as fast when I'm caffeinated. So thank you for listening to me talk about the things that, that I'm most passionate about. I hope that you find them informational. But more importantly, I hope that you find them transformational for yourself, um, for the people in your life, for your faith communities, for your interfaith relationships. It is really important that we know that we are all better together and that the lines that divide us are imaginary. Hope to hear from you guys soon. Hope to answer some questions. And I hope you have a great day. Thanks, friends. Bye.